Good morning, everybody. If uh, you're visiting with us today or streaming with us, maybe streaming for the first time, I want to say welcome to all of you. I want to say welcome to everyone. We're so happy that you're here to be with us this morning as we worship God. And uh, my name is Mark, if we've never met. And at the end of our assembly, as you go out through these doors and go through the family room, there is, if you look over to the right, there is a green wall. And up at the top it says, welcome. And if we've never had a chance to talk or to visit or even to introduce each other to ourselves, then I, w- I would encourage you, in fact, I would invite you to take opportunity to go by and just say hello. If you'd like to place membership with our church or want to know what that entails, uh, we can talk about that. If you would like to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, what it means to become a Christian. There are lots of people here that can talk to you about that, and there are lots of ways for you to get that information. One is go out by that green wall and find the guy. Now, we had a little bit of controversy this morning. I said this was a blue uh, pullover. Somebody told me it's teal. <laughs> teal. It's teal. So look for the short guy with the teal pullover, and, and that's meat this morning. Uh, if you don't have a chance to go by there, but you still want that information, you can fill out uh, a card out at the welcome station. You can also send an email to the church office, or you can find somebody that has a little name tag. They'll either be a shepherd or part of the ministry staff. You can talk to them, and they will make sure that we answer all of your questions. Also invite you right now to pull out that insert in the, uh, in the bulletin. On one side, it says uh, the Great Commission, Opportunities. That is the sermon outline that we're going to use today as we finish up this series this morning. On the back side is the MPG. MPG stands for Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. There are some ways throughout the week that you can memorize God's Word. There are some things for you to pray, and there are some things, some practical things for you to do that glorifies God with your life in this community that, uh, that will take this message that we're going to have this morning, take it a little bit further down the road. Now, uh, before I get into the message, I, you know, I just want to say how much I appreciated Alan Babcock's prayer for the community this morning at the early service and, uh, and, and Stephen's prayer for the community and for the world uh, at, at our, our 1030 service, the one we're in right now. Uh, the world is a weird place and deadly. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. There are people that we are going to spend all of eternity with that live in the Ukraine and live in Russia and live in China and Belarus and all of those areas, Poland, all of those areas. And the thing that is going to sustain them, well, there are lots of things that are going to sustain them, but one of the most important things will be our prayers in a place like this every day. The gospel is incredibly powerful and it changes lives. And when we speak to God and whisper the names, we say the names of our brothers and sisters into the ear of God, it is no small thing. And what we really need in terms of, and there probably be lots of things that we're going to hear about in the coming days and weeks that we can be doing as a church to aid brothers and sisters and you know, people that are in distress, is to remember every day to pray that the Prince of Peace will reign on earth. 
So, we are finishing up this mini-series on the Great Commission this morning. And next week we're going to be thinking about grace for the next eight weeks. And uh, one of the things that we have said is that, uh, you know, the Great Commission is, is a very small text, but it is gigantic in its implications. And it's found at the end of the very first gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, that's found at the beginning of the Christian scriptures or the New Testament. And in that very, I mean, it's just the last chapter and those last verses, Jesus is getting ready to ascend to heaven. And he is instructing his disciples on how to see the world and what, how they see the kingdom of God and what they're to be doing until he returns one day. And he tells them that he wants them to go into all of the world. Not just stay put in one place, but the kingdom of God is something that is to spread and to, and to ripple and to leaven and, and to, uh, to go into all of the world. And as they go into the world with the gospel, they preach the good news of the kingdom and they baptize people for the remission of their sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they are to teach these disciples how to live in light of the kingdom of God. And the last thing he says to them is, you do not need to ever worry that you're going to be doing this alone. You may be going to the far-flung reaches and you know, the four corners of the earth, but you're never going to do it alone. Even if you're by yourself, you're never going to do it alone because I will be with you. You may not be able to see me, but I, Jesus, will be with you as you teach people the gospel. And what was true on that day, 2,000 years ago or so, is true today. They have a mission, and say it with me, we have a mission. And I think we all know by heart our mission statement, how we, how we phrase our mission statement, our biblical mission statement, with these three dots. Say it with me. Love God, love people, change the world. That's what we're doing. And when we do that, when we love God, we love people, and we change the world, what we are doing is continuing what Jesus began. Now, back, and you know, this is like half a century ago now, uh, back when I was in middle school, uh, I lived on a street. My brothers and I, we lived on a street that, uh, that had just a jillion kids. That is a very scientific number, jillion. But that's what it seemed like, right? We had all of these kids that were within two or three years of our age. I mean, we had so many kids that one summer we were able to divide up into four different countries. We had our own Summer Olympics with medals and everything. But one of the things that we really liked to do, especially during the summer when uh, we didn't have to go to school the next day, was to play what we, you know, it was a form of hide and seek, but it was team hide and seek. And so you'd have, you know, 12, 15 kids on one side. They were the ones that were going to be seeking. And then you have 12 or 15 kids on the other, and they would be the hiders. And the way it would go, you know, the, the, the sun had gone down. It's dark outside. The street lights are on. The 12 or 15 kids that were going to be seeking, the first thing they would do would lay down in the street next to a street light with their face down, and they'd count to 50. And the rest of us, 12, 15, 16 kids, whatever, we would go and hide throughout the neighborhood, only in the front yards. The backyards were off limits, but we would hide in the front yard. And there was like 30 houses that, you know, they, I mean, could you imagine that happening today? I mean, kids running through your yard at 10 o'clock at night, I mean, you know, 5-0 would be on their way, right? But that's the way it was back in the 70s. And one of the things that we discovered, my brothers and I discovered, as key to winning this game is that since we were playing at night and it was super dark outside, except for just a couple of streetlights, if we wore everything black, we could camouflage and blend in to the shadows. In fact, there were times 
when there was somebody two or three feet from us and they never even knew we were there so well blended and camouflaged into the grass and the shrubs and the trees that they did not know we were even there now over the years i've kind of wondered from time to time if the church of jesus christ has sometimes kind of lived that way that there were uh, you know two or three feet away from us People who were looking for us, but they couldn't find us, they couldn't see us or make contact with us because we had blended so well. We were so camouflaged into the surroundings that we just blended in. Here's the thing. What works well in a game of hide-and-seek does not work in Jesus' mission of seek and save. Jesus, the Messiah, did not blend in. He did not blend in, but he stood out. Jesus as a human being, the Son of God incarnate, was experienceable. In fact, the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' best friends on earth, at the end of John's life is writing sort of a general letter to the church at large, and he describes Jesus as experienceable and observable at the beginning of this letter we call 1 John. And he writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have what? And you hear with what? Your ears, right? Which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have what? Touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life, that is the life of Jesus, it appeared. We were able to see it and touch it and, 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 and behold and listen. The life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it. And what the Apostle John is trying to convey about Jesus is that Jesus never lived a hidden life. Jesus was not sequestered away. Jesus did not live a hidden life, but he lived a public life, which means that he lived a life that was observable among other people. His life was distinct, and it was on display. His words were heard. He was somebody that you could reach out and touch. He was somebody that you could eat with, you could walk down the path with. And he calls us, his disciples, who are walking in his footsteps, imitating his life. He calls us to live the same kind of a public life, visible life, observable life today. In fact, one of the first teachings of Jesus to disciples when he began his public ministry is found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he says in verse 14, you're also the light of the world. And he defines it this way. A town built on a hill, say it with me, cannot be hidden. Say it again, cannot be hidden. Let's say it again, cannot be hidden hidden which means that we should never be camouflaged into the world around us but we should stand out we should contrast in the world around us being a disciple of jesus which means that we live speak and do as jesus spoke lived and did makes us a community of contrast not of blending in not camouflage but contrasting we should, be, be, we should be able to be easily seen by the world around us. We are a community, as Jesus calls it, that cannot be hidden. 
even if we tried by the nature of our life, not just our message, but by the very nature of our life, we cannot be hidden. A community that does not blend in, but a community that stands out in God's grace and in His love, by His Spirit, living out His Word, peace and joy and self-control and generosity and forgiveness and all of these things are what make us stand out, not blend in. And when we take a life of contrast into the world, we need to create opportunities to have those kinds of discussions. One of the things that you see about Jesus is he lived this incredibly rich godly life without blemish without sin but he was continually creating opportunities for which his life which was a contrast of anything anybody had ever seen would create the the desire or the hunger or the opportunity to intersect with the words of the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of god and what i would like to do in the time that we have left is for you to open up your bibles to the Gospel of John, which is the fourth gospel, the fourth story of Jesus, the fourth book in what we call the Christian Scriptures. We're going to spend the next couple of minutes going through the first 13 chapters. Now, we're not going to do that verse by verse, but we're going to go through those chapters and see examples of the way that Jesus created opportunities in just the natural coming and going of his day that created these opportunities for him to share his faith and for the church to begin and for the disciples to be made. And so we're going to begin with John chapter 1. And the first thing that we're going to see in John's gospel is Jesus' hospitality. Never underestimate the power of inviting people and welcoming people into where you live. John the Baptist one day, down towards the middle of that first chapter of John's gospel, is with his disciples. And he's pointing to Jesus and he says, you see that guy that's walking down the street? That is the Lamb of God that everybody's been looking for who takes away the sins of the world. And two of those disciples, John the Apostle tells us, followed Jesus that day. And as they were following him, Jesus became aware of it and says, what would you like? What, what, what do you want? And they said, where do you live? And Jesus said, come and see. And they go and they stay with Jesus and they go, they go to where he's living. They stay with him that entire day. And at the end of the day, the impact that Jesus had had on primarily Andrew that is recorded in the first gospel, Andrew goes and finds Peter and says in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Hospitality, inviting people into your life is an important way to share the gospel. Number two, John chapter two, it's helping with a problem or helping people out of a jam. There's this wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And the wedding couple, they're celebrating, celebrating, the whole village is out. Next thing you know, Jesus' mother finds out that they've run out of wine, which is not just a social liability, but it can also be a financial liability. I mean, it's just a social downfall, a faux pas for this young couple. And Jesus, hearing about the issue, he becomes aware of the problem, and you know the story, he turns water into wine. And the disciples, we read at the very end of that story in verse 11 of John 2, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Number three, John chapter 3, flexibility in schedule. You know the funny thing about sin is it does not operate but 8 to 5. Evil, uh, brokenness, hurt, 
all, all of the things that ex- extend out of the kingdom of darkness that is around the clock. And so we, as the people of God, as disciples of Jesus, those who know the words that lead to life, an abundant life, and lead to a new birth, we should be as flexible in our schedule as evil is in, 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 in destroying people's lives. And so in John uh, chapter 3, we read the very first verse. There's this Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. He's a member of the Jewish ruling, ruling council, and he comes to Jesus when? At night. He comes at night. Kingdom opportunities are not just between the hours of 8 in the morning and 5 in the afternoon. Opportunities to talk about the kingdom of God do not always happen at the most convenient times. And therefore, we must be very flexible with our schedules. John chapter 4. It's the power of a question. There were so many people that came into our church in Brazil. We'd be riding on the bus with them or interacting with them. They knew that we were not Brazilian. They start talking to us, and next thing you know, they're asking questions, we're asking questions. And I can't tell you the number of people who became members of our church because we just happened to be seated, seated, but seated. English is my first language, right? We were seated together on a bus, and you just ask a question that led to a conversation, which led to another conversation, an investigation of the Bible, and then a conversion. So Jesus, in John chapter 4, he does the most surprising thing. He goes to Samaria. He's sitting down at a well in the middle of the day near Sychar. His disciples have been sent into Sychar to grab some food when all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, the most surprising thing happens. A woman out of the village comes, and she's going to draw water in the middle of the day. And the reason she's doing that is because she's not welcome at the cool morning or the cool in the evening. She's a persona non grata. She can only go in the middle of the day. And she meets Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and says, it's, 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 it's the most perfect sermon of the gospel. It just says, can I have a drink? That's all it was. Can I have a drink? And she is so startled, she goes, I'm a Samaritan and a woman, and, and you're talking to me, and you're Jewish and a man? And the next thing you know, they're talking about her life. And the next thing you know, she is becoming so compelled to, 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 to listen to Jesus that she, she doesn't want to just keep it to herself. She shares it, and she goes running back to Sychar, and here the disciples come. The disciples come back, and they're bringing sandwiches. This lady comes back, and it's with a whole village of people who want to meet Jesus, the Messiah. And that's what she says to him in verses 28 and 29. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? In John chapter 5, don't give up on those who give up. Sometime after Jesus meets this woman in Samaria, he's back in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate where there's this pool called Bethesda. There is an invalid who has been there for 38 years, and he was there because of a local legend that said when the waters in the pool became troubled and stirred up and kind of boiling a little bit, it was an angel with his finger stirring it up, and the first one in got healed of whatever was wrong with them. And Jesus walks up to this cat and says, Would you like to be healed? And he says, I've been here for 38 years, and I've got nobody to help me. I've got no one to help me. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus heals this man who had given up. Don't give up on those who give up. In John chapter 6, Jesus meets a need. There's just a need. In this particular case, there's a large crowd, about 5,000 men that needed to be fed at the end of the day. Jesus feeds them. And at the end, 
the, the people whose needs were met said, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. John chapter 7. Always be where people are. Go where people are gathered. It's now the fat festival of tabernacles, and those that are close to Jesus want him to go and make a public spectacle of himself. His brothers primarily saying, you know, if you're going to be somebody, you need to do it now in front of all of these people. And Jesus says, I'm not going up now. He goes up later, and he's in the temple teaching and teaching, teaching and teaching and teaching. John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. We're tough with issues. We're tender with people. We take a stand on issues, but we don't stand on people's necks. A woman has been caught in adultery. She's brought to Jesus. And everybody's feeling so righteous, the religious folk. And they, they kind of roll this woman forward and say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, the funny thing is, it takes two to commit adultery. They only bring one. So it's a trap. And Jesus is just sitting down, writing in the dirt. And, and they go, you know, Moses demanded that we execute such a person. What say you? And Jesus just keeps writing in the sand. He's just writing. Nobody knows what he was writing. One theory is that he was writing down the sins of the men that were there wanting this woman to be stoned to death. And they keep after him and just, what do you say, what do you say, what do you say, what do you say? And finally he stands up and he looks at all of them and he says, okay, but you without sin cast the first stone. And you know how the story went. The wisest and the oldest all the way to the youngest in that order begin to drop the rocks and they leave. And Jesus, after a little bit, looks at the woman and says, Hey, where are your accusers? He's asking, Where are your accusers? And she says, They're gone. And he says, You know what? I don't condemn you either. But leave your life of sin. Tough with issues, tender with people. In John chapter 9, we got to see people. We got to see the person. It's a great story. Jesus is going along. He heals a guy that is blind. And it all begins with the disciples asking, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born in sin? The, the disciples see a sinner. And then Jesus heals the guy. He's celebrating. And everybody goes, Who is this guy that's celebrating? Some said that he was a beggar. So the disciples see a sinner. The neighbors see a beggar. And all of this, because it was done on the Sabbath, bring in the religious authorities in that time. And, you know, they had this miracle, but the big thing is that it was done on Sabbath. And so he becomes a religious debate at that point. And they can't get to the bottom of it. So they say, we need his parents. Bring his parents in. And so they bring the parents in, and they want to know, was this guy, not your son, was he born blind? And John tells us they were afraid that they were going to be thrown out of the synagogue. So they say, ask him, he is of age. Tremendous miracle has happened in the life of somebody that's been broken since birth in terms of their eyesight. The disciples see a sinner. The neighbors, he's a beggar. The religious leaders, well, it's a religious debate. The, the, the parents see him as a threat. The very first verse of John chapter 9 says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man. And then in talking to his disciples about the nature of his blindness, he says he was born this way so that you might see the work of God displayed in him. John chapter 11, we'll skip John chapter 10. John chapter 11, be present in the bad times. Bad times are going to come. 
And they're going to come to the people that you love, the people that you know, and they may be the people across the aisle from you or across the cubicle from you. And a lot of times when the bad times come, people are absent. They don't know what to say. They're uncomfortable. There's, there's something about grief that sometimes people think it's a little contagious and they don't want to get too close in case they might have to grieve too. But that's not the way of Jesus. When people are in distress and people are in pain and they're experiencing in their body, in their soul, in their emotional life, grief, Jesus is there. And God's people are called into those kinds of places. John chapter 11, the death of Lazarus. Jesus is there with his sisters, with the people that are mourning, with his own disciples, and Jesus weeps. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus is there and interacts and engages with Martha and Mary in the depths of their grief. So do we as the people of God. We'll finish with John chapter 13. It's, it's about serving others. It's about doing good. It's, it's about, you know, one of the ways that Peter describes Jesus is that in the book of Acts is he went around doing good. He was serving people. And one of the ways that we open the door to be able to talk about why our life is different and to talk about the difference that the gospel makes in our life because of God, because of Christ, because of the Spirit, is through our service to other people. And you know the story. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, which you know, it made them very uncomfortable because he's the master, he's, he's the king. They should be washing his feet. But the king and the master, the creator of heavens and earth, and everything in between is washing their feet. Sometimes it's just getting out there and doing good that opens the door for us to be able to explain the difference that the gospel, the kingdom of God has made in our life. Friends, each day we live in the hope each day we live in the anticipation that thy will be done on earth in heaven, as it is in heaven will become a reality. And right now, the world that we live in, it seems that that world is a mess. And it is. But we believe that one day God will make all things new. That one day there will not be a scent of death anywhere, not a whiff of evil. That there will be an end to all of the things that create tears of pain and grief. And that we will be living in a place where the tears that we shed will be tears of joy because of the beauty of living in God's presence. In the meantime, in the meantime, meaning this afternoon and tomorrow and every day after that, we trust God with our lives. We trust the promises of God. And as Ben has led us this morning, we stand on those promises because God is a rock. And He entrusts the mission to us. We recognize that God is sending us into the world to continue what Jesus began. Everywhere that Jesus went, he went as someone who was sent. Does it make a difference in the way that we are going to live this afternoon? 
how we're going to live tomorrow and every day until Jesus comes back, knowing that God is sending us as well. That God is sending us into homes and schools and workplaces, the places that we teach, the places that we coach, the places that we type and text, the places that give us paychecks. He is sending us into relationships. He is sending us into into the community. And He is sending us as people who possess not only in the way they live the good news of God, but they have the words that help people to experience it on a daily basis. God is putting your life in a place to involve your faith in those places so that His will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. And John chapter 3, verse 16, it's because He loves the world. John chapter 3, verse 16 is the declarative statement in the Bible that God refuses for sin to have the last word in all of our lives. That He refuses to live and to exist in the universe without us. It is worth it to Him and to Jesus that that He would die for us in order that we could exist in all of eternity. Not for 72 and a half years, but for all of eternity in God's heaven, where we are experiencing His will being done as it is in heaven. And it is because He chooses to exist to us. So what are we going to do today and tomorrow and the next day? We're going to live lives of contrast. We're going to live as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. We are going to bring, we are going to traffic in God's grace. We are going to traffic His love into the community. We are going to open up the veins of people who are hurting, and we are going to insert love and forgiveness and peace and joy and kindness and gentleness and every piece of goodness that is a part of God's kingdom. It will be transfused into their lives and to the point that the scales fall from their eyes and they're able to see that God did this for me. I don't deserve it. But He did it for me because of love. Four words. We have a mission. Let's stand and sing.